0: Hi, welcome to Classics Unlocked, a program brought to you by Universal Music and Classics Direct. I'm Graham Abbott. Right at the start of our time together, I want to confess that I have a soft spot for Rule Breakers, and this music is by one of the most famous Rule Breakers in the whole history of music. His name was Hector Berlioz, and 2019 marks the 150th anniversary of his death. Perhaps best known for writing the Symphonie Fantastique, the symphony which blew not only all other symphonies, but perhaps all of music out of the water, Berlioz was a maverick. His musical training was haphazard, had conspicuous gaps, and came relatively late in life. His father insisted he qualify as a doctor, which he did and Hector's decision to devote his life to music not only appalled his family, but set him at odds most of the time with the conservative musical establishment of France. Throughout his life, Berlioz had a passionate interest in the connections between literature and music, a passion which led him to set texts to music. So despite the fame of the purely orchestral Fantastic Symphony, It's as a composer of vocal music that Berlioz made some of his most marvellous contributions to the repertoire. In this program, we're going to survey some of Berlioz's music for the human voice. When we look across the range of vocal music Berlioz created, the first thing that strikes us is the sheer breadth of it all. It ranges from intimate music for voice and piano to music on a truly mind-boggling colossal scale. And underpinning it all are two constant features. An ability to write music which is truly unique, no one can imitate Berlioz, and a burning need to bring out the drama inherent in the texts he set. We just heard one of the songs from a set of six songs called Les Nuites d'été, Summer Nights. It was originally conceived for voice and piano and completed in that form in 1841. Two years later, Berlioz arranged the piano part for orchestra of one of the set. It wasn't until much later, in 1856, that he decided to orchestrate the remaining five, and it's in the orchestral version that Les Nuits d'ete* is more commonly heard today. Here's the opening song Villanelle. These days we tend to associate art song for voice and piano with German-speaking composers, especially Schubert, Schumann, Brahms, Wolf, Richard Strauss and many others. But French art song is just as important to the singer's repertoire, and Berlioz was one of the earliest composers to reveal its potential. The music in which he showed what he could do was written around 1830 and published as his opus 2. Called simply Nine Melodies, the title doesn't reflect in English what the original in French, Neuf Melodies, conveys. The term Melodie in French means much more than tune. It refers to a song in which the melody is designed to connect closely with the text. In other words, it's the French equivalent of the German word Lied, which in this context also means a lot more than just song. Berlioz's nine melodies set French translations of poems by the Irish poet Thomas More, and they date from the time in Berlioz's life when he was infatuated with the English actress Harriet Smithson. These two were orchestrated by the composer and retitled Irlande, Ireland. But the original piano versions are delicate gems, perhaps signifying, although this is hotly debated, the actual start of French art song as a rival to German leader. Anne Sophie von Otter is joined in this recording of the fourth song of the set by pianist Cord Garben. It tells a simple story of a noble lady's encounter with a valiant knight. One of the peculiarities of French art and culture in the 19th century, and well into the 20th, was the annual awarding of the Prix de Rome, the Rome Prize. It was instigated way back in the 1660s as a scholarship for painters and sculptors. It was later expanded to include architects, engravers and composers, and it lasted until it was abolished by the French government in 1968. The successful first prize winner in each category each year was expected to spend a period of time, usually two years, in Rome, honing their craft by imitating and or being inspired by the classical art of the city. The Composition Prize was first awarded in 1803, and even a cursory glance down the list of successful applicants reveals very few famous names. The fact is, French art, and especially French music, was hidebound by strict conservative views, especially in the early 19th century. This did not bode well for someone like Berlioz, but then again, anyone who wanted to improve their standing with the establishment had to at least enter and, hopefully, win. It looked good on the CV, as we'd say today. The first round of the competition required applicants to submit exercises and manuscripts. If they got through to the second round, a cantata, usually for solo voice and orchestra, and sometimes with chorus as well, was required, setting a stipulated text. The final stage saw a narrowed-down list of these cantatas performed, and on the basis of this the prize would be awarded, or not awarded. There were many years when the first prize wasn't awarded at all. Berlioz entered the Prix de Rome four times, submitting a cantata each time. And the four pre-cantatas, as they're often called, are fascinating works. His first attempt in 1827, with a cantata called The Death of Orpheus, was rejected in the first round. The second cantata in 1828 was Ermini, which won him the second prize. The 1829 cantata, Cleopatra, is perhaps the most fascinating of all, but it clearly didn't impress the judges. No first prize was awarded at all that year, and Berlioz's work was specifically damned because it betrayed dangerous tendencies. In 1830, he finally decided that if he wanted the prize, he'd have to toe the establishment line, so the fourth cantata, Sadanapal, was written in a much more conservative, less dangerous style. He won, but even then the judges couldn't bring themselves to be seen to approve of him. Berlioz won the first grand prize, while another composer, the now forgotten Alexandre Montfort, won the second grand prize. Here's the extraordinary death scene which concludes the allegedly dangerous Cleopatra cantata, a gripping work which deserves to be much better known today than it is. This is part of a recording featuring Jesse Norman. In the realm of choral music, Berlioz left a number of works which almost defy categorisation. An early setting of the mass, the Mess Solennelle, was presumed lost until its rediscovery in 1991. It was composed in 1824 and performed twice, after which the composer suppressed the score. Ideas from it appear in later works, and it's a fascinating curiosity. Of a completely different nature is the sacred trilogy L'Enfance du Christ, The Childhood of Christ. This grew out of a joke when, in 1850, Berlioz composed a little four-part chorus called The Shepherd's Farewell to the Holy Family. In this, he deliberately wrote in an archaic style – and when it was performed at a concert later that year, he claimed it was actually composed by a 17th-century composer called Ducre, someone Berlioz had invented. The hoax fooled a number of people, with one audience member saying that Berlioz would never be able to write something as beautiful as Ducre. A few years later, Berlioz returned to his little chorus and incorporated it into a short concert scene called The Flight into Egypt. The success of this miniature encouraged him to add two more sections, Herod's dream, before it, and the arrival at Saïs, after it, making the childhood of Christ as we now know it. The final work puzzled audiences, and even today, apart from The Shepherd's Farewell, it's rarely performed. To my mind, that's a tragedy. It's actually one of the most beautiful things Berlioz ever wrote. On a much larger scale is a work which grew out of Berlioz's lifelong fascination with great literature. In the late 1820s he discovered Goethe, albeit in French translation, and one of his early works, Eight Scenes from Goethe's Faust, grew out of his encounter with the German poet's most famous work. In the mid-1840s, as a much more accomplished and mature composer, he returned to this early effort and incorporated parts of it into a gigantic work for chorus, solo voices and orchestra called The Damnation of Faust. Belliers called it a dramatic legend. It's a dramatic oratorio which is almost cinematic in scope, requiring a theatre of the mind on the part of the audience to mentally see its various powerful scenes. It has at times been staged as an opera, a hugely daunting and challenging task given the scenic requirements. The music, though, is overwhelming, and despite its many challenges, is often heard in concerts and on recordings today. Sorry.
1: I'm going
0: scale than The Damnation of Faust are Berlioz's two settings of sacred Latin texts, the Requiem and the Te Deum. The latter of the two, the Te Deum, dates from 1849 and is a monumental setting of the ancient hymn for two adult choirs, an optional children's choir, a solo tenor, a large orchestra and solo organ. But even this pales by comparison to the Requiem, dating from 1837, which was written to commemorate the deaths of recently fallen war heroes. Berlioz's Requiem, which he called Grande Messe des Morts, or Great Mass of the Dead, requires truly massive forces. An enormous orchestra with 20 woodwind, 20 brass, including no less than 12 horns, a colossal percussion section of 16 timpani, two bass drums, 10 pairs of cymbals and four tam-tams, and four completely separate brass ensembles placed at four points around the choir and orchestra. These alone total an additional 38 brass players. To balance all this, Berlioz recommends a massive string section of more than 100 players. Then there are the voices. A solo tenor is used in one movement, but otherwise the work is carried entirely by the massive chorus, which must be more than 200 voices. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites.
1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post
0: your free job on linkedin.com people today. The big moments of the Belio's Requiem are very big, shatteringly loud and thrilling beyond words. But a great deal of the work is quiet, displaying unprecedented instrumental combinations. Like everything else Berlioz wrote for The Voice, the Requiem is dramatic, which can mean both dramatically loud and dramatically soft. But the loud bits, especially those describing the end of the world, are the bits everyone remembers. I mentioned earlier in this survey of Berlioz's vocal music that he always responded dramatically to a text, so it stands to reason that we would expect him to have composed operas. This is especially so as opera was a vital part of French musical culture during Berlioz's life. To be successful at the opera also looked good on the CV. In all, Berlioz left us three completed operas. The first, Benvenuto Cellini, was premiered in Paris in 1838 it was not a success. The audience hissed a lot. It was taken up by Franz Liszt in Weimar and presented there in a version which contained a number of alterations made by Liszt, but it fared little better. The only other performances in Berlioz's lifetime were in London, where it also failed. In recent decades, it's been taken up by many theatres around the world and has started to find a niche in the operatic canon his third and final opera is a delight, the comedy Beatrice and Benedict, based on Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. It was premiered in 1862 and was a success from the start. In between Cellini and Beatrice, Belios turned to ancient Greece for inspiration. He wrote a libretto himself based on episodes from Virgil's Aeneid, and the result, The Trojans, was written over a number of years in the mid-1850s. It's regarded by many as his greatest achievement, but he didn't live to see it performed complete. The Trojans is massive, a five-act opera containing between four and five hours of music, and Berlioz only ever saw the last three acts performed, under the title of The Trojans at Carthage in 1863. The first two acts, called The Capture of Troy, were given concert performances, but these didn't take place until many years after the composer's death. The first staged performance of the entire work wasn't mounted until 1890, but even then, and until relatively recently, the Trojans was regarded by many as unstageable. Thankfully, this view has faded, and since the 1970s there have been memorable productions of the work, sometimes splitting it over two nights, sometimes mounting it in a single night. It's now regarded as one of the most visionary and revolutionary operas ever written. Dido's aria of farewell near the end of the fifth act is here sung by Françoise Paulet. And so, how to wrap up the immense contribution of Hector Berlioz to vocal music? Perhaps in one of his most innovative and sadly least known works. A piece which combines his love of literature, his love of drama, his new ways of using the orchestra, and his revolutionary ideas about the symphony. This is Romeo and Juliet, a large-scale dramatic symphony for solo voices, chorus, and orchestra. Its seven movements cover major episodes of Shakespeare's play, which Berlioz adored, and the result, part symphony, part oratorio, part opera, caused a sensation. In the audience at the premiere in 1839 was Richard Wagner, who openly acknowledged the profound effect Berlioz's work had on him and on his Tristan und Isolde in particular. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. One of the greatest moments in the score is the scène d'amour, the love scene, which parallels the balcony scene in Shakespeare's play. Berlioz here amazingly decided that setting the famous words of the lovers, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo, etc., would be impossible. Rather, the scene is described by the orchestra alone, in one of the most passionate episodes of romantic music ever conceived by the human mind. Music here transcends text, and the composer regarded the scene d'amour as one of his proudest achievements. The movement itself goes for more than a quarter of an hour, but we'll conclude our time together with just the end of this amazing music. It's played on period instruments by the Revolutionary and Romantic Orchestra, conducted by Sir John Eliot Gardner. My thanks to Tom Ford for the technical production of this program. I'm Graham Abbott. Bye for now.